Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. Today's program is a continuation of the previous broadcast where I was presenting the subject of the woman who was caught in adultery. Today's program is a continuation of this subject in John chapter 8. Beginning in John chapter 8 verse 2, it says, Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? In verse 5, they said that Moses said one thing, but they asked him, What do you say? In other words, here was an opportunity for the Lord Jesus to say something that could be contrary to what Moses had to say. Now, in order to truly appreciate what is being communicated here, I need to take a moment to review what I was describing in the previous broadcast. And that is that predominantly, the main conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees had to do with the laws that the Pharisees had derived to obey so that they would never come within the boundaries of possibly violating any of the laws of Moses. That's really what identified a Pharisee. A Pharisee was considered to be a very religious person, a very devoted person, a person who was very much committed to living a life of repentance and obedience. Their history begins back in Babylon, where the people recognized that the reason why they were in captivity was because they sinned. And so they began establishing a lifestyle, a way of living, so that if they would only follow this lifestyle, if they would only follow these rules and regulations and traditions that they would put in place, then the hope was was that through their obedience to these traditions and these lifestyle changes that they would have to make, that they would never come within the boundaries of possibly violating any of the real laws of Moses. But over time, what happened was that there was a radical decision that was made that the Pharisees decided that the laws that they had come up with, these traditions that they had come up with, were actually the oral law of Moses, the law that Moses did not really have enough time to write down, and was passed down to the elders of Israel so that the people could receive these laws orally and abide by these laws so that they would never officially violate any of those laws that Moses had written down. This was a radical decision that was made around the second century B.C., before Christ Jesus. And so by the time the Lord Jesus came on the scene, this belief, this philosophy, was very well entrenched within Israeli society. So when Jesus was conducting his ministry, what he did was he made a very strong statement that distinguished between the Pharisaical law and the Mosaic law, not only by his messages and by his sermons, but also by his actions. He would do things like heal people on the Sabbath day, or he would walk through the grain fields on the Sabbath day. He would make mud with his spit 
and heal a blind man on the Sabbath day, things like that, in order to clearly separate himself from the Pharisees. And that was the real source of the conflict between him and the Pharisees, was the fact that he was not living in obedience to their laws. However, he was most certainly living in obedience to the Mosaic law. Virtually every conflict that we have recorded in the scriptures between Jesus and the Pharisees had to do with this issue of the Pharisaical law. Now, certainly there was nothing wrong with the Pharisaical law in and of itself. It's just that they believed that they had found a way to live in obedience to the Mosaic law. And Jesus was making it very clear to them that while they may think that they're being fully repentant and obedient, as far as he was concerned, they weren't. Therefore, they would be in just as much need for grace and mercy as anyone else. And without the grace and mercy of God, they would have no hope of ever entering into the kingdom of heaven. And that was a definitive dividing point between Jesus and the Pharisees. So in John chapter 8, verse 5, they confront him for the first time, and actually, as far as I can tell, the only time they confront him over the Mosaic law. Every other confrontation had to do with their own Pharisaical laws, but in this circumstance, they are confronting him over the Mosaic law. Now, their purpose for doing this is to have an opportunity to accuse him. Now, certainly, if he just simply says that if a person has been caught in adultery, then according to the law of Moses, they should be executed. However, if he says that in this context, there is an opportunity to accuse him. And in the previous broadcast, I was giving an example that was described in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says that if there is a man who commits adultery, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. And so I was explaining that because the man was not present, we have a situation here where a trial is being conducted, and yet the adulteress and the adulterer are not being held on trial. And so while a judgment may be given to execute one person, a judgment is not being given to execute the other person. And so, in effect, this law is not being fully obeyed. Now, that in and of itself is not really an opportunity to accuse the Lord Jesus. I mean, it is in a way, but the accusation is just simply that he is not obeying or he is not following through with all that Moses had to say. And in a sense, that could be an accusation, but I honestly believe that the accusation would come from another law that Moses said. Because certainly, while Moses did say that adultery was a terrible crime and should result in death, that's not all that Moses had to say, especially with regards to the whole scope of the law. I personally believe that the accusation would have come from another law that is found in Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, where it says that you shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. I believe that they could accuse the Lord Jesus on the basis of Exodus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, not really accuse him on the basis of Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, because Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 refers to the adulterer and the adulteress, 
not the other persons who may be involved in the trial of an adulterer or an adulteress. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, it says that you shall not bear a false report. Certainly Jesus is not doing that. He's not giving false testimony. He's not presenting himself as a witness. However, if he does concede to the woman being executed, if he does concede and pass judgment in that regard because the man is not present, the man is not also being executed because of this crime, If that's the case, then the Lord Jesus could be accused of this other part of Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, where it says that he would join his hand. It says, do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. In other words, by Jesus giving his judgment, he would be joining his hand with another person in order to be a witness. That is one possible source of accusation or condemnation that they could levy. But if you don't like that, that's fine. Keep going to verse 2, where it says that you shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute, so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. In this case, it would be the beginning of verse 2, where Jesus would be following the masses in doing evil. The evil would be executing the woman and not the man also. Certainly the woman would be guilty of adultery. Certainly she should be executed according to the law of Moses. However, that's not all that Moses said. Moses said that the man needed to be executed also. And if you do not do that, then you are perverting justice. And in this context, Jesus is following the masses to pervert justice. So that would be a source of accusation. I sincerely believe that it is a very subtle opportunity and that this is the actual trap that was laid for the Lord Jesus. It's important to answer this question of what was the trap that was laid before the Lord Jesus. Was the trap that a person should be stoned or not? No, certainly not. That question can easily be answered by the law of Moses. Was the trap something like, you shall never pass judgment against anyone unless you are absolutely sinless? Well, the Lord Jesus was sinless, and so he certainly would have the right to do that. There's no real trap there for the Lord Jesus to say, go and sin no more. Well, that was after they left, but there's no trap there either, because according to the Mosaic law, she should never sin again. That is a definite expectation of the Mosaic law, and the Lord Jesus made that clear throughout his ministry as well, that if you would not stop sinning, then you would in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have to really ask yourself where the trap is, and I sincerely believe that this is where it is at. If the Lord Jesus said no, that the woman should not be executed, he would be entrapped because he would contradict the Mosaic law. If he says yes, then he is perverting justice and he is following a crowd to do evil. He would therefore be entrapped into violating the Mosaic law. That was the trap that was laid before him. This is described, if you continue to read in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, where it says they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them something which I'll come back to in just a moment. In verse 6, it says that Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, there has been a lot of speculation throughout the centuries with regards to what Jesus may have written. 
And people have been studying this verse and they have been discussing this verse and speculating over this subject as if whatever he wrote is still there in the sand for us to look at and read. There is this bizarre attitude that many people have that if we just study this verse long enough and discuss this long enough, eventually whatever he wrote will somehow miraculously appear out of the page and so we will be able to read it for ourselves. But the language that was used here did not place emphasis on what was being written. The emphasis that was described by the way that this was recorded was not to place emphasis on what was written, but instead on the finger. The emphasis is to be placed on his finger. I sincerely believe that this is a very subtle revelation that John gives that shows the deity of the Lord Jesus. Because this issue of adultery was nothing new to the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. God manifested in the flesh, dwelt among us, and took upon himself the name Jesus. And he lived here on earth, he walked here on earth, he talked, he ate, he slept, he worked, he did lots of things here on the earth, he performed many miracles, and he lived as a man would live, as a true man would live, if he was truly living in dependency on his God, his Father in heaven. The Lord Jesus was a perfect representation of that as he lived his life. But before that, don't forget, he's God. He is the one who actually wrote the first Ten Commandments with his very finger. It was with the finger of God that these commandments were written. And so here they are, these people, who are coming to the God who wrote these commandments, this one included, on stone. With his own finger, he wrote these commandments. And they're asking him, what does he think? Well, he's the one who wrote the commandment. He's the one who gave them the commandment. And so I believe it's important to see that, that the emphasis is to be placed on his finger, not on what he was writing. But the real issue was that they were questioning the God of this universe. Continuing then in John chapter 8, verse 7, where it says, They persisted in asking him. He straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now what he says is extremely powerful. It's extraordinary how he responds to the trap that is set before him. By saying what he said in the way that he said it, he effectively sets a trap for them. And what's the trap? It's the same trap that they set for him, the exact same one. He turns it around right on them and says, Look, here's the situation. If you're going to stone her, then go ahead. But the person who throws the first stone is a person who should be without sin. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that a person had to be sinless in order to throw the first stone. That's not what he meant to say. If that was the case, then he would be violating the Mosaic law because the Mosaic law did not require somebody to be sinless in order to throw a stone. For him to say that would be in contradiction of the Mosaic law and it would also lead to a great deal of chaos and society to say the least. Jesus was saying that if there are witnesses, by all means, throw the first stone, provided that they have not committed a sin in the process of 
stoning her. I sincerely believe that that's what he's referring to. That he who is without sin in this circumstance with regards to this context of what is taking place here, if you're not sinning by being a witness, then by all means throw the first stone. The first stone in an execution was to be thrown by the two witnesses. There had to be at least two witnesses at any trial The first stone was thrown by these witnesses as part of the execution. This was a law that was given by God and recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7. That is Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 2 through 7, where the witnesses were required to throw the first stones. However, if there are witnesses who are testifying that this woman is committing adultery, then these witnesses are perverting justice and following a crowd to do evil. They are violating Exodus chapter 23 verses 1 through 2 because the man is not also present, the adulterer, who is expected to be present as defined by Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10. And so for the Lord Jesus to say, he who is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. What he's talking about is that you need to have both the adulterer and the adulteress present in order to follow through with your execution. Otherwise, you are committing sin by being involved in this trial. In this circumstance, you are not without sin. Therefore, if you follow through with the execution, by doing so, you yourself will be violating the Mosaic law. That was the trap that they set for him, and he turned it around and set the trap for them also. So how do they respond? Well, they leave. They're certainly not going to stick around there and just wait to see how things turn out. They were the ones who instigated this to begin with. Now the people are going to want to know what they are going to do in response to what the Lord Jesus had to say with regards to the circumstance that they brought before him. And so most certainly, the easiest thing for them to do is to just walk away, let it go, and leave the woman behind. This is described in John chapter 8, verse 9, where it says, When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. Now what's interesting here in verse 9 is that they left one by one, beginning with the older ones. Now, don't just read over this and not realize that this is a very, very important statement, because when trials took place according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin governed all trials, according to the laws of the Sanhedrin, which the Pharisees would certainly be living in obedience to if they were a part of the temple, if they were members of the judges of the Sanhedrin, or given authority to judge over other cases, then they certainly would abide by this law. This law has to do with how a vote would be taken in the event that a trial is taking place. The way that votes were taken were from the youngest to the oldest, not from the oldest to the youngest. Votes were taken when a judgment was requested at a trial. The votes were taken from the youngest to the oldest to ensure that the youngest judges would not be influenced by the elder judges. That's why this order is so important. It's important to ensure that the younger judges would pass their judgment without being influenced by others who they may respect very highly 
and they may not be willing otherwise to pass a judgment that may be contrary to those who they hold in high regard. And so for John to record that they left is one thing. And to say that they left is, of course, no real big consequence. That's not the big deal. The big deal here is that John records the order in which they left because by default, by walking away, that is how they cast their vote. They cast their vote by no longer participating in this trial, by just walking away. Then as we continue to read in John chapter 8, verse 10, it says, Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Now again, as I was explaining in the previous broadcast, the importance of this section in the scriptures is not this conclusion of once you commit a sin and you have acknowledged that you have committed a sin, then you go out and try to live a sinless life. That certainly is not the importance of what is being communicated here. I sincerely believe that the most important aspect of what is revealed in verse 10 and 11 here is that Jesus clearly tells her that he is going to continue to live in obedience to the Mosaic law by not trying to condemn her when there are not two witnesses who will testify against her. And he also enforces the importance of her continuing to pursue full, complete obedience to the Mosaic law. In other words, his message stays the same. His message remains consistent. In most cases, we will look at verse 11 and we will say that this is a proclamation of the new covenant, whereas in the new covenant, he no longer holds our sins against us. That certainly is true. I just do not necessarily believe that that was what he was intending to say in this circumstance. I believe he was intending to say that certainly you may be guilty. You may very well be guilty of adultery. However, I will not condemn you, not because you are guilty or not guilty, I will not condemn you because there is no one to testify against you. He is establishing and perpetuating the law. That's what he is doing. The law certainly did establish provisions for punishment in the event that somebody violates the law. However, there were very important laws that were given within the law that made it very difficult to actually convict somebody of a sin, of a crime, and then punish them. It is very difficult to do that. Adultery, for example, would require two or more eyewitnesses. And in most cases, adultery is not performed in a public place. And what can be even more threatening is that if a trial takes place and there are witnesses who testify against someone and the person who they are testifying against is found not guilty, then the witnesses will receive the same punishment that the other person would have received if they were found to be guilty. And so it was very difficult to find witnesses who would really be willing to put their own lives on the line for a crime that somebody else committed, if there was certainly a risk that they may be found not guilty. I believe that the laws were structured in this way in order to ensure that a person who is innocent would have the greatest opportunity to be set free without being punished for something that they didn't do. But the cost of that is that there are many people 
who will violate the law, who certainly do deserve the penalties that are described by the laws, and they will be set free also. In other words, it is better for a guilty person to be set free than it is for an innocent person to be punished. And I sincerely believe that the law has been very well structured. The law of Moses was very well structured in order to ensure that that would be the case, that that was the bias that was placed. It's very similar to the philosophy of a person being innocent until proven guilty. It is very similar to that in order to help ensure that an innocent person will not be punished for something that they did not do. But when considering the outcome of what took place here with the Lord Jesus, something that I really find interesting is that while there was so much discussion about the law and while there was so much discussion about whether or not a certain law should be obeyed or how it should be obeyed, the people came to the Lord Jesus asking for a judgment on a certain matter. The Lord Jesus responded to them by turning things around and showing that they were the ones who were actually committing sin by bringing this situation up to begin with. While we can look at all of this stuff, one thing that we definitely do not want to lose sight of is the fact that the Lord Jesus had one primary purpose in conducting his ministry here on the earth. And that primary purpose was to minister to the people, was to reach out to the people. These individuals who brought this woman who was caught in adultery was not really concerned about the woman who was caught in adultery. They were not concerned about her husband. They were not concerned about the adulterer. They were not concerned about the other people who were listening to the Lord Jesus teach when they brought this woman to him. They were not concerned about any of that stuff. They had their own selfish interests in mind, and these selfish interests were hopefully going to be met at the expense of the Lord Jesus by showing that in some circumstance he's wrong. But in the midst of all of that, the Lord Jesus continued to reach out to the people with the same message, the most important message, which is the message that we need to recognize that we have no hope outside of the grace and mercy of God. Regardless of how we live or how we don't live, there is no hope outside of his grace and mercy. That was the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And today it continues to be the ministry of the Lord Jesus to all of those who are so consumed by their own pride that they are unwilling to recognize the provision of the Lord that will heal their hearts. I pray that you and they and we all may experience the healing power of the grace of God as we grow to discover more and more what we have already received in Him as a result of what He has already done for us. You've been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 383-53, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80937. Or use the donation link on our website, livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. 